This is SQPN, the StarQuest Production Network, leading the way. This episode of The Secrets of the Hobbit is brought to you by Bluehost, a great hosting solution for your blog or website, very easy to set up and very affordable. That's important too, $6.95 per month. I use it myself on my blog, fatherroderick.com, highly recommended. And if you want to find out more or sign up for an account, just go to sqpn.com bluehost. This episode is also brought to you by my new book, Geek Priest, Confessions of a New Media Pioneer. You can purchase that at uh, Amazon. There are also some stories about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in there. And uh, if you purchase it at Amazon, make sure you go to our website first, which is thehobbit.sqpn.com. Click on the Amazon link and then buy the book or anything else. And if you do that, your purchase will help support our show. SQPN.com presents... The Secrets of the Hobbit. There and back again. A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins. Where to begin? And we are back again with a new episode of The Secrets of the Hobbit. After so much time, what happened? You've all been waiting impatiently, or perhaps patiently, for our review of the second Hobbit movie, The Desolation of Schmauk. Well, Christmas happened, and a lot of work, and then I got sick <laughs> with a very nasty sinus infection, which basically made it impossible to record anything for about three weeks. But I'm so happy that we are back together with the gang joining me today, Riley and Bethany Blenton. Good morning, folks. Morning. It's a journey. <laughs> you perhaps unexpected, perhaps, but good one. Excellent. I, you guys are skyping out a little bit. I'm not sure if that's because uh, I've been talking for a while, and then Skype thinks that uh, you guys are not important anymore. But uh, we'll see if if it uh, repairs itself. So tell me, when did you see? The Desolation of Schmauk, and uh, just just give you uh, just a, a, a bit of a like the atmosphere around the the, the, the premiere for you guys. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience. And uh, okay, there you go, there you go, Skype. Sometimes Skype does have some fun with it. No, I'll tell you what, Father, as as huge of Star Wars fans as we are, as we've talked about on the show before, as huge of Lord of the Rings fans as we are. We went to, Bethany and I went to our first midnight premiere of a movie ever. Really? Right here in Atlanta at the, uh, at the theater right up in Midtown Atlanta. And there was a huge Tolkien gathering. And I heard about this only a few days beforehand. And I saw an event on Facebook for the local Tolkien fan club that was do- going to do the midnight screening. So I talked to Bethany and was like, we should totally do this. So we did. That was uh, our first experience seeing The Hobbit was at midnight in a theater absolutely jam-packed with huge Tolkien nerds. And it was quite an experience. I'll tell you what. I was pretty exhausted at the end of it, but uh, I, wouldn't take, I wouldn't take the experience back. But Bethany, what do you think of the, uh, of the whole thing? Uh, I think seeing the midnight showing of it was definitely a great experience. Just to be there with so many like-minded fans who were all incredibly excited about the film, uh, just really added to the atmosphere. I mean, the film doesn't need adding to at all to make it great, but that made the experience that much more fun. Well, it's interesting, if, if you're talking about like the context you want to see these films and I think it, it has, makes a huge difference on your initial impression as to the audience that's seeing it for the first time because I, I think who you experience it with and the people around you, I think, can... Um, 
influence at least your thoughts on the film. I think that's especially the case, you know, that was the case often with Star Wars films, but I kind of got that here where there's kind of a, an, an energy in the room that I haven't experienced ever before, and that's probably kind of what defined our first viewing. And subsequently, I think we've each seen it, what, one, two, three times. Uh, we've, wow. I've each seen it three times so far. Now, are um, Tolkien fans different from Star Wars fans or Star Trek fans? Are, are they dressed up? Are they wearing their pointy ears? Or uh, just like you have stormtroopers and Darth Vaders all over the theater whenever there's Star Wars uh, in the movies? Well, it's interesting because Regal Cinemas uh, is right in Midtown Atlanta, and that, as a gathering point, everyone gathered at a, a local establishment called Mihans. Uh-huh. It's absolutely fantastic Irish, uh, Irish pub and restaurant, and they reserved a large, large, high-ceilinged room in the back huh. with a large oak wood table. Wow. That, not unlike Bayorn's house. Right. And it's so, like, like Atl- Atlanta's fan- prancing pony. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, as, like, as the community gathered, uh, you know, we, Bethany and I have been to Star Wars celebrations, and, and there, were, there were folks there in costume, and, and, but there's a, kind of, uh, there's a kind of sophistication, I think, to the, the Tolkien fan community where this shared experience, a lot of, a lot of the conversation that took place was... Uh, different than you would experience at something like a Star Wars celebration, which I think is kind of a more fun and family mm-hmm. uh, experience, um, not in a family-friendly way, but more in a just kind of a fun atmosphere, whereas here there's actually kind of uh, almost academic uh, level of discussions that were really fun to experience talking about some of the themes within Tolkien. And it was almost more of a religious experience, quite frankly, Interesting. Um, as, yeah. going, as, as we went into it. But it was, it was great because it was all complete strangers at the beginning of the evening, which is always, you know, kind of intimidating mm-hmm. to go in a brand new social environment like that. But, but by the end of the night, we had already met, you know, we'd made good friends and, uh, you know, waited in line for several hours and, you know, had dinner and everything going into the midnight screening. So it, it, was, it was a great experience. And that's what makes these premieres of, of, of the Hobbit trilogy so interesting because it's, it, this is a, like a once-in-your-lifetime experience because everybody, of course, is at least the fans are like, what is the movie going to show us? What, are, what, what is it going to mess up? What is it going to succeed at? Uh, will it be true to what Tolkien wanted? Is it true to what we think Tolkien wanted? Is it true... To what I want and project on Tolkien, <laughs> you know, and so it's the <laughs> kind of stuff. Right once there. the movie is out and we've all seen it, that discussion is over. And so that I, I think you did the, the right thing to go to that premiere because when will you meet p- people that are so into Tolkien, so into The Hobbit, and 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 at that time of of, of you know of our history where you basically see. Um, a, a new version of a story that yeah, you might have been reading since you were a kid and then still have that anticipation and also perhaps dread as to will it live up to your to your ex- expectations <laughs> i saw it in a in a slightly different uh environment a big theater um has like it's this is a brand new theater has hfr uh 3d like the best there is fantastic seats and um i watched it just before just around Christmas time, I was very, very busy. So were a lot of other people. That's kind of the downside of the Christmas season for a, for a, the launch of a new movie. Like people are so busy with other stuff. So to my surprise, the the theater wasn't even completely full, but it was. There were enough people, but not the. Let's say not the Tolkien geeks. It was just regular movie going audience. Um, lots of 
people from my age, actually, you know, in their 40s. And um, not many families. Uh, and, and judging from the reactions, just people enjoyed the movie. But they didn't. Ha- there wasn't that buzz like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe. No, what? <laughs> that kind of yeah. stuff. I mean, they did. And, and it was good to see how, a, a, let's say, a, like a, a regular run-of-the-mill audience reacts to the story and, and gets it or doesn't get it and when they laugh, etc. So that was good. The second time I saw it was actually uh, in the middle of the day and it was, well, actually just recently, two weeks ago. The funny thing is that viewing um, had a lot more real fans. And so what I think is that the now that the movie has been in circulation for quite a while, the people that still go and see it are actually the people that are that are watching it for the third or the sec or the fourth time, like I was, and so um, that that um, experience was actually better than the first one because I was surrounded by the true fans. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, I I I I so would love to be at uh, perhaps for the third movie to be at the the real premiere, like the world premiere. Uh- and just I don't know I I kind of missed the the the, the premiere the, this this year it was in L A I think the 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 world premiere right it wasn't in New Zealand I actually watched they streamed it live again I watched it it was pretty it was pretty interesting not quite as spectacular as the first film yeah I love the first the first uh, uh, premiere and following that on on the internet and just seeing uh, beautiful New Zealand it was a glorious day it, it just it 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 felt so right that it was there and that everybody you know all the all the kiwis were so excited <laughs> and i don't know perhaps for the third movie i will actually travel to see it but uh but anyway let's let's waste no more time and and let's talk about um this second hobbit movie and let's just start with a general question and it's way too general and it actually is a question that doesn't really make sense um but just first impression what what did you like it it's always, I think the, the litmus test of has to be when you walk out of that movie theater, what are you, what do you because feel? That's when, especially in today's age, that's when you have that raw first moment of emotion where you're realizing what do you think of the film? Because before you, you read all the Rotten Tomato reviews, before you go on Twitter and see what everyone else says, because it's great in some ways, but I think in today's internet age, it can be easy to kind of, uh, pollute your personal feelings on a film because of the community that surrounds it online so quickly. So when you that there's this kind of precious moment when you first step out of that theater, and what what did you think? And and man, when I when the credits smashed shut and everyone gasped, I I was thinking to myself, a there's no way that Peter Jackson just did that to us. <laughs> and B, I was like, uh, that was a great piece of cinema, and I cannot wait for the third film. <laughs> that, that, was, that was kind of my walking out initial raw emotions of, of my initial impressions. There was so much to it that we'll, I'm sure we'll be going into depth about what made the film work well, things that detracted from the film. Uh, along the way, but like as a whole piece of cinema, I thought it was superbly done, and um, it just man left me really wanting more. So in that way, Peter Jackson accomplished his job. Um, although there were it, it's 
in the overall, it's still, and I, and I heard your, you gave a mm-hmm. kind of brief review on the break, and actually I think we fall in a very similar category where I don't think it quite holds up to the first one. Uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about that sure, more. Sure, definitely. We'll have, we have reasons for that. What about you, Bethany? Uh, when I saw the film first, I was quite tired because it was the midnight showing. This is true, yeah. And the other one actually... was, and let's go to sleep now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, it, and it was actually the theater, for some reason, managed to mess up oh, I forgot. how it was playing at first. What? So we went through was, basically what was delay. all of the trailer time. And then there was even further delay beyond that. Uh, and it was getting delayed enough to where we were thinking, are they just going to have to start over and us see the next showing? Uh, oh, but fortunately, no. they managed to start. Wow. Uh, and that's one reason why it was such a late showing. But eventually, they got it completely fixed and the screen was good. Uh-huh. So we were relieved by the time that it started. Did, but did it mess up the, the, the first scenes or, or did they did, didn't get the, the whole thing running or... Uh, they did manage to get the whole thing running eventually. Basically, uh, yeah. I mean, they got it playing a... into like the last half of the last trailer, I think. Yeah. So we saw okay. the last half of the three hundred trailer. Yeah, the three hundred yeah. trailer. Right, right. Yeah, and it did actually. The projection was briefly messed with for like the first minute or so, but like it was only about a fifteen, maybe twenty minute delay. But it, man, it felt like forever. I it imagine. Did. <laughs> Especially because it's already so late and the anticipation is so big. Oh, yeah. Did did you watch it in HFR? Yes, we did. Excellent. And And that was the first time I'd ever seen anything in HFR. Really? That way. What did you think of that then? It was interesting because I didn't know it was HFR for sure until I went back and looked at the screening details. I was pretty sure it was. Mm hmm. So then watching the theater, I was like, well, this may not be, but it does seem like some, it does feel a little bit different, but maybe that's just because it's a brand new theater and right. it's huge screen. And so mm-hmm. I think that speaks, speaks well for it because I didn't notice a huge difference, but I think there was a distinct kind of um, vividness, yes. I would say. There's yeah. a kind of, it's, it's straight, it's very difficult to describe. There's a, but, there's certain clarity to the image yeah. and, and um, it almost feels like you're really looking through glass instead of looking through a fogged up mirror. And and I I I can totally notice the moment when, when it switches because you have all these film trailers before it and they're already in 3D, but it's all 24 frames per second. And then all of a sudden the screen goes dark and you see this little blip when they switch from, I guess, the computer that operates the, the projector. And then you see the Warner Bro- Brothers logo and you're like, oh, wow, that looks so clear. And it's almost as if you're like you're you're opening your eyes again. It's I don't know. It's like a very emotional um, reaction that I always have. Like, wow, this is what it's supposed to look like. And then I, I mean, it's 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 hard to go back to 24 frames per second for me after after seeing a movie like this. But but it's true. You forget about it almost immediately. And that's what it's supposed to be. I mean. Technology should should not get in the way of the storytelling. It's just helping you to have an even better experience. And I think that that um, Peter Jackson himself said that they did what they could to um, uh, to, to to help the audience a, a bit more. There, there was quite a bit of criticism on the first movie, and he said I, I tried as much as I could using different techniques to make this second movie even more film-like and it has to do with certain smoothness but also perhaps sometimes a little bit like even deliberately blurring the image a bit so that it is not as 
as sharp and clear and uh, he he's clearly just still learning to um, to use this uh, uh, HFR in um, you know in an optimal way but I I personally I'm very much in favor of HFR, and I hope that we're we're going to see more. I hope it's 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 going to catch on. Well, time to talk about the movie itself. What I'm going to do is I uh, will just use one of those online uh, summaries because I, there is just so much happening in this movie, and also a lot of details that I'm I'm afraid to skip over important parts. I'm just going to use uh, one of the wikis. This is um, uh, lotr.wikia.com. They have a good uh, summary of the movie, and I will just stop every time and, and talk about what uh, uh, that, that particular part of the movie. So, the movie opens, big surprise, it's a flashback. We go back in time, about a year, and we are in Brie. And the first thing we see is the guy with the carrot <laughs> that we've already seen in The Lord <laughs> of the Rings. And of course, it's a cameo by Peter Jackson and a very clear one <laughs> and I I started laughing I don't know if many others in the in, in my theater uh, noticed it but <laughs> I was like yeah that's him so I burst yes. out staring it was hilarious and it was so much like the Lord of the Rings like uh, the Fellowship um, and it was this uh, Brie, it, Brie looked even bigger um, even better I think and there was not a, not a, not as much rain and mud but clearly just visually uh it wanted to create this parallel uh, with uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So we uh, arrive at the Prancing Pony, but in, instead of the hobbits entering, it is now uh, Thorin, and uh, Gandalf the Grey is there as well. At first, you don't even notice him. He's just having a beer at the bar, and then uh, there are two, like, clearly some dangerous folks, um, and, and right as Thorin thinks he's going to be attacked... Uh, Gandalf sits in front of he, him and tells him uh, about, well, the bigger picture, and that him and 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 tells him that he has uh, asked his father to go to the to retake the mountain, and now it's up to Thorin to do that, and it it's very important because he's worried about the dragon. He thinks the dragon is actually um, it's going to, is part of a bigger threat, and as long as that dragon is there, it. The, the evil coming from the east might actually uh, be more, much more dangerous. So he needs the dwarf to create a new buffer. Um, and and he wants Thorin to go after uh, the Arkenstone, basically. And then he also reveals that there is a price on Thorin's head. And um, that is just adding to the... To, to the... Let's say the urgency of Thorin to do something... Um, and it also, for me, I think it was this was this was introduced to remind the audience who, you know, has seen the the movie the first movie like a year ago, uh, reminds us of the uh, the why of the orcs. You know, why are the orcs after the dwarfs? It is it's kind of like a um, let's let's reestablish that in case someone forgot. And and that's it. That we 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 uh, we hear about the dragon, we hear about the Arkenstone, and of course this is not a scene that is part of the first of the original book. But I I do believe that this was based primarily on um, the appendices that Tolkien wrote. So, reactions, thoughts. exactly. It's and it kind of as you mentioned, it goes back to a theory of 
of the way Peter Jackson's approaching the film, where he wants to bring in the audience uh, outside of the the just the Hobbit books to kind of connect it to the larger Lord of the Rings picture, and that's kind of mm-hmm. especially in this film was so evident with how much he's trying to weave in the appendices and the larger picture of the Hobbit. And we've talked about it before on the show, but. I think that's a very good thing to bring in the significance of Smog isn't just some dragon, which is what you would think the first time you read the book. Yes. But again, this is the story of the Hobbit in the context of Middle Earth, not an adaptation of the Hobbit, the book. So I think in it, with that view on the on the plot, that's a very good approach to take when you're trying to bring in the audience as to, you know, if we know that every if the audience knows that Sauron. Uh, is is present and the evil is rising in Middle Earth, then the idea of a dragon being present is suddenly way more threatening, which you realize once you read the pen- appendices. What I loved visually about this scene was, uh, again, how masterfully they made you believe that actually Thorin is a little guy, <laughs> is a dwarf. Everything <laughs> is big. I mean, he has this huge mug. But did you notice even the olive that is next to the piece of cheese on his plate is huge. So I don't know if that's a fake olive or just a very big one. But it, it was such a nice detail. And then you, you realize that all the other people around around Thorin are basically people on stilts. That's how they did it in, um, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's just basically people walking on stilts in, in big cloaks. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's quite a, a logistically a difficult scene to film. I was a bit confused by the two bad guys. I was like, is this... I mean, it was clearly the way it was filmed, even the music reminded me very much of the of the moment that they see Strider sitting there in the corner. And and at first, you, you if you don't know the story, you think that Strider is actually dangerous because he has that ominous look. And so I was like, okay, that's def- yeah. definitely a, a parallel there. But then I was is this just a perception of Thorin? Or are these two guys actually really trying to catch Thorin? You know, is I it what, that what? it could be either? Honestly, with uh, with Thorin basically going on the quest that he is, there really could be people who are looking for him. People, or maybe not necessarily people, but there are people who are aware of these things that are going on. And I don't think that it's just Gandalf or just Galadriel who are getting hints of, you know, something right. is happening. Right, 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 right. So it could be, or it could be, Thorn, Thorn is a little bit paranoid, and you see that in this film as well. Mm-hmm. You, you have to wonder which it is. That's why I was doubting. I was like, is this, is this just in his mind? Are, are these just, you know, just people that are staying in brief for whatever reason, and they might look a little bit unsavory, but they're not really a threat? Or the fact that they um, actually leave... Uh, the prancing pony together and then kind of it's almost as if you know without words they're telling each other let's just wait for another occasion because this Gandalf guy is too uh, you know he's too dangerous it's almost as if they give up but then I was like hmm I don't know perhaps the ambiguity is uh, is deliberate we then switch uh, forward back well back to the present day and uh, this must happen well right after They've uh, uh, they've left the uh, the Carrick actually, and we see that um, Thorin and Bilbo and the other dwarves are being pursued by Azog and the other orcs, and Bilbo is um, clearly using his stealth 
abilities to uh, to look around and to see what's happening. And he, see, he sees this big bear. At first, I thought it was just one of those, you know, new newly designed uh, wargs. But then I was like, oh, no, wait a minute. That's, that's probably Bayorn. And um, and then he he uh, rushes back to the to the dwarves, informing them about this, you know, big creature. And Gandalf is like, "Did he look like a bear?" Hmm. Uh, and then uh, uh, it, he he says, "It's it's a skin changer. Um, there is a house nearby, and let's just go there, and uh, uh, we might be we might be safe there." Uh, let me just give the first first reaction here. I was a little bit disappointed by this scene in that um, when you first see uh, Bilbo looking at Beorn from a distance, I felt that there there was way too much, you know, color correction going on. They try to suggest that it is um, the evening and there's this kind of this purple bluish light, but it felt too contrived almost too, too artificial and it, it reminded me of, 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 of some of the scenes in the lord of the rings trilogy where you're like gosh there's just too much post-production here <laughs> it doesn't look real anymore and then when he runs back to the dwarves it felt like a set even the audio felt like they're just in a studio and and the, in the background you see that same light and it is a bit blurred and it looks fake <laughs> so that took me out of the movie now i i i'm probably way too picky and uh, I, I don't know why i react like that but i was like you know what that is just i wish they would have done a better job this feels too much like what they did in the lord of the rings trilogy and i i expected more after you know more than 10 years now yeah although it does kind of introduce a specific concept of the idea that this is really i don't know if you've read anything about this father or if you've seen this present in the fan mm-hmm. community of folks talking about this is really almost kind of a chase movie of sorts where um, yeah it's no it's not as much of a journey as it's kind of become with the pursuit of azog and then bold this kind of introduces that concept of being a you know chase film instead of just a journey film. it is true it's true that um and i think that's probably a deliberate choice in order to give every scene a certain sense of urgency yeah. and also a, a reason why they are on the move you know you, you need uh you need a causation <laughs> you need a reason a cause why they are running and yeah they could have just strolled up to Bayorn's house but having these orcs uh gives it so much more energy <laughs> and then and makes it more I, there's more at stake it, at the same time what i feel uh, in general about all the pursuits and all the chases is that it does give the whole movie a rushed feeling literally like it's yeah. almost as if there is no time to stop for a little bit more you know conversation or character development it feels like there there are too many moments in the movie where i i was hoping to have a little bit more time the the first one actually is where they start to run through uh, actually this happens at dawn and early in the morning uh, when they run towards uh Bayorn's house it it you see this there's this one beautiful crane shot of the of the meadows and there are all these purple flowers did you notice that and and that is so that is literally in the book that the the the, the it, there's lots and lots of 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 purple and and lilac flowers there and um 
you 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 realize that all I, those flowers one by one have to, have had to be planted there for for that scene that lasts no more than two seconds. That's yeah. just amazing attention to detail. It's yeah. it's crazy, and and um, well, you see just very very briefly. Bayorn's house and then immediately you see the scene that we knew already from the trailer where he is in pursuit and um but it almost feels like this is so rushed <laughs> i mean we're in in the we're into the movie for for about 5 minutes now and and boom 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 and then they're inside Bayorn's house and you have that other scene from the trailer where Bayorn is trying to get in as well and everybody's terrified and Bilbo draws his sword and and uh, i don't know just Felt very rushed. We still don't know much about about Bayorn. Um, it it did feel rushed because Bayorn's house is such such an amazing house. Yeah, and Bayorn himself is a fascinating character. I do wish we could have spent a little more time there. I understand thematically why it may not have been the best of ideas, mm-hmm. but part of the rushed aspect of the film, I think, loans to the company's exhaustion and yes. Thorin's paranoia to the way that they behave with each other, to all the way to later in the film, to leaving Keeley behind. It's like, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, and there's this sort of focused in on, we have to do this, that there's a loss of what are the consequences, what are we doing as a company, well, what, what, is this, and, what is this journey that is now a chase turning us into? You know, are, well, we, and, are we turning desperate and into yeah. desperate people because of our desperate circumstances. Well, and if I could dovetail on what you said, Bethany, I think what's interesting about, and this is kind of on a thematic level as we go through the beginnings of this film, it, it just hits the ground running so fast that um, I, the second time we saw the film, it was some with family and friends around Christmas time. And uh, I, I remember a, a good friend of mine and my, some, one of my in-laws uh, brothers he, he after the film, he's a huge Tolkien fan, and he said, "Hmm, that was a fun film. It's kind of the the Hollywood Hobbit." And I thought, <laughs> if you're going to try to boil down, like as great, a, the, I really enjoyed the films, but the the few things that I that I disagreed with or that I felt kind of took me out of the story and didn't work as well, can all really be boiled down to that phrase. They all fall into that category of kind of the Hollywood Hobbit because if you look at Bilbo's journey in the first film, you don't have that kind of uh, urgency uh, until the end of the film. Right, and, and especially if you look at Lord of the Rings, like Frodo and Sam's journey, um, what's so great about that is that it very closely parallels their uncle's journey and trials and tri- mm-hmm. tribulations. And it's not like Gollum and Sam and Frodo had Shelob on their tail the whole time of you know Return of the King. So I think, like thematically, when you're approaching this kind of film, Jackson has a kind of temptation, I think, to create tension where there doesn't need to be tension yet, because yes. You by the time you get to the end of the film, and we'll get there, you're so fatigued already. It's hard to have that build up to the end. That's a very good point. Yes, it's a, it's, it's about the pacing, and I think it is. It has also probably due to the the editing phase where there is just so much footage, and you have to cut it down. But you don't want to leave out the action because that is kind of the at least what is selling the movie to the to the general audience. And so, I guess you're right. There, there are there's a lot of time given to the action scenes, like the barrel ride and the dragon, and I would totally um, be okay with be, that being cut down and then having a little bit more time just to to be where we are instead of just just look right, look left, and off we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
I, I wonder if this was almost a reaction to some of the reviews of the first film, though. Well, and you know, that people or critics more well, and I'm were saying up, that... Uh, I'll, I'll brief Jack Bethany, I'll let you continue. I'm looking at the, the Rotten Tomatoes score. Like, the first film it was still rated fresh, but it was only about 65%. So mm-hmm. the, the, this film was, like, critically a huge success, 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. Even the audience is at, like, 85%. So, like, critically, you're right. Yeah. Well, and that's, of course, something that a director is totally, uh, it's, it's his choice to do that. And if it pleases the majority, who am I to criticize that too much? But uh, it's probably also because you already know the story that you just want to dwell. It's the first time that we see Bayorn's house. So uh, as a fan, I was like, oh, I want to stay here for an hour. I don't care. It's, it's, yes. it's so cool. <laughs> But uh, I, I guess for the general audience, perhaps that having that drive, having that, you know, let's not waste too much time. It's a bit like what George Lucas always said with Star Wars. It's like, do it again, but faster. And if you, if you look at the pace of, of some of those Star Wars movies, it just, it's relentless. <laughs> but at least there are a few moments where it slows down, the music slows down, and, and that's why it, you don't ex- it doesn't feel like it's rushed. This movie felt like we're constantly running. And, and actually, everybody is constantly running. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> poor, poor dwarves, poor actors, because they're running around in hot studios with all those fat suits. <laughs> yes. Tell you what, if you were part of that company, you would certainly be in good shape by the end of that journey. I think so, too. And exhausted. Yes. Uh, I think I, I saw an, like um, a Google uh, chat with uh, Evangeline Lilly. And she said, actually, I was so exhausted. And it was, this was grueling, just physically. And if you look at the fighting and all the choreography, and I mean, you have to be at the top of your game all the time, even for the reshoots that might happen months later, when you've already gone to McDonald's multiple times and, <laughs> and having to you know, step back into it and have that same intensity. Wow. Anyway, so they, uh, Beorn, let's talk about him because then you have those scenes. By the way, little nitpicking thing. Um, those are not honeybees. Those are bumblebees that are flying around <laughs> there. They're not supposed to be bumblebees. They look cute and they don't look menacing, but they're yeah. not honeybees. My, my old sister and her husband keep, are, are beekeepers. They have, they have bees right here in the, in the South Georgia area on their property. And yes, that was exactly the same thing. <laughs> well, perhaps in Middle Earth, actually, the bumblebees do produce honey. <laughs> I mean, you can always have an explanation for it, but it it was a bit a bit strange. Uh, I was glad that the bees were actually there, and that we saw the the animals also in Bayorn's house. And then just realizing, wait a minute, those are, you know, they look like real cows or whatever it was but of course they must be gigantic animatronics because the the actors are so you know they look so small but everything is big i thought it was very very well done i loved the 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 introduction of uh of bayorn i that was the character that i was most worried about in this second movie because we we had seen do you you remember that um spy image from a calendar Uh Yes, and, one, there's and one the that kerfuffle actor. Yeah, it popped up on like the One Ring, and yeah, and the, it's happened. It's like, and Bayorn looked like Khan, like a bad, like a cheesy '80s version of Khan, True. like the old Khan, you know, <laughs> with the fake breast hair and everything. It's like no, <laughs> but actually, I thought it, 
he was pretty good. Orcs I hate more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I do like how, you know, when you first see Bayorn and he is in bear form, he's pretty terrified and the dwarves think that he's going to kill them all. Yeah. And they don't trust him at all. Mm -hmm. And in his human form, you understand more that he is a more sympathetic character. You know, you see the way that he treats his animals when he picks up the mouse. Yeah. But there is this still underlying sense of danger about him that I'm yeah. very glad that they kept in yeah. his human form. And straight from the appendices when he referenced that he was the last of his kind. That sort of oh, thing. I didn't know that. I was wondering about that. And I, I really liked the way he, he, the actor portrayed him. He definitely looks imposing. And, um, and it's in these tiny moments where he walks around the table. And this is just before he take, picks up the mouse. And then he has to bow down because otherwise he will bump into one of the supporting what, whatever it is, the, 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 the ceiling. And so even in his, his house is actually quite small for this guy. He's so huge. And, uh, and and I thought he didn't look at all as 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 bad and as eighties as, <laughs> as as he looked on the calendar. <laughs> I thought it was pretty pretty okay. Uh, but again, so brief. It's just okay. Oh, here's some horses and just get out of here. And that's it. <laughs> and I was a little bit wow, Bayorn. We barely could, got to know you. Yeah, I, I really do hope we get to see more of him in the third film. Oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> but it was it was good. I mean, I was happy after that. I was like, okay. This is this is this is this is going to be good. Then uh, that night, uh, Azog is summoned to Dol Guldur by the Necromancer, and this is the first time that we get to see a little bit more of the Necromancer. And boy, does he look different from what we the glimpse that we got in the first movie. The necromancer actually turns out to be this kind of, well, I was thinking the smoke monster, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot better. It's, it's kind of this evil looking black smoke and twirling around and, and Azog, the, the way it was filmed and he, he walks up to this huge like black void it totally made me think of Darth Vader in Empire Strikes oh, okay. Back before he meets the the Emperor, and even just visually and in, and in terms of proportion and the you know the Emperor was on the right side in this case, uh, it's it's a Necromancer on the right side, and then just awesome because you know what Azog is pretty creepy and pretty impro imposing, and all of a sudden he's, he's dwarfed by this presence of the Necromancer. Mm -hmm. And then, big surprise, um, the introduction of Bolg. So, apparently, Azog has to stay there at Dol Guldur and, and lead the armies of, um, of the Necromancer. And then he sends uh, Bolg to hunt for Thorin. And Bolg, is, he, he, I think he's bigger than his father, right? He's like, even, he looks even more yeah. scary. Yeah. <laughs> You, you you think how can someone be how can an orc be more ugly than Azog? Well, just look at Bolg. <laughs> well, we'll see. And here's the interesting: if I just delve into the mythology for a second, um, yeah, Bolg is is indeed the son of Azog, but um, in the in the books, he's the one who succeeded him after his death yes. at the Battle of. And I am referencing Wikipedia. This is not mm -hmm. off the top of my head. So just uh, <laughs> clearing that, I'm cheating a little bit. But I did remember that Bolg was from the books where he yes. uh, succeeded uh, after his father Azog's death. 
and and so, and he was at the Battle of the Five Armies in the book. So yes, yes. As, as I understand. So what's interesting is that I'm glad they pulled that in. It kind of creates. I, I thought that it would have made sense in some ways to just replace Bolg's character with Azog and and keep Azog as the main villain. But uh, I'm I'm glad that they decided to bring that portion into it. In the past, we've talked a lot about this and, and, and the reasons for the introduction of Azog and the fact that he's still alive, even though, even though the books and Tolkien seem to indicate that he was dead. I think it has to do with the Battle of Five Armies and with the fact that, um, because we know that Bolg, the reason why he's so vicious and dangerous is also because he's so mad about the death of his father. Exactly. So what, you know, if, if Azog... if kind of mad. If... <laughs> Azog is going to be killed during the Battle of Five Armies, uh-huh. and Bolg, you know, and that's the and we and Bolg sees that, and we see it. We will understand his rage, and he will become even more vicious and dangerous, and it will just create uh, for us something uh, personalities to relate to in that battle, which is absolutely, uh, um, I think, essential for us to be able to. Endure um, a, 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 a battle scene that is probably going to take up a, a huge portion of the okay, of the last now movie. I'm coming back to me as I was doing, as father, this is why mm-hmm. you should be writing these scripts. That's a brilliant idea, <laughs> and it reminds me because in the Battle of the Five Armies, I'm recalling from the book now, and because mm-hmm. I was referencing Wikipedia as well, um, where Bolg is the one who fatally wounds. Uh, Thorin. Right. And he is then crushed by Bayorn, who's mm-hmm. avenging Thorin yeah. in the battle. And it's because it's, it's been it's been like it's been about I guess I read it the it's been almost two years now since I read the book, you know, just before the first film came out. And but, I think it's it's uh, totally okay if he would kill Thorin because he's just he's an orc and so he's evil. But it will have so much more emotional impact if at first we will see Thorin killing killing Azog. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then Bulk seeing that and then getting that rage. I mean, it's a it's a different way to tell the same event, but I think it will have more impact. Because even despite the fact that we, you know, we, we are supposed to empathize with the good guys, I think we also, in a way, have to empathize with the bad guys and have some connection with these characters. And um, I think that they're doing a good job. I was actually, you know, I had that when I, when, I, when in this second movie we first see uh, Azog again. I was like, "Oh, there you are! <laughs> it's good to see you again." I mean, it almost feels like that. <laughs> and and actually, another thought that I had when I saw Azog was, he looks so much more real than in the first movie. Yes. All the criticism about him looking like like uh, like CGI and too plasticky or rubbery, for me, it totally worked in this movie. His movements were more real. I don't know if the motion capture was better, but definitely the just the whole digital makeup of his character was was fantastic. Yeah. And Bolg looked looked even like, you know, not even CGI. I was like, this is just a real orc. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The I did want to go back to what you were saying earlier about how they could explore Azog's death and then Bolg really having uh, an even better reason to purely hate Thorin and want to kill him specifically. Mm-hmm. Um is that is the whole approach, whether or not that is what winds up happening, um, that is the whole approach that Peter Jackson has taken with these films, is he understands that The Hobbit as a book is a fantastic book, but for the viewer who may not understand what's going on, 
to tell the tale only from Bilbo's perspective is a loss to the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so to go back and explain from the appendices, you know, Bayorn is the last of his kind. You can understand Bayorn's anger, the sense of danger that you get in his presence. The fact that he is, while a good guy, yes, a dangerous creature. Yes. Uh, it's by exploring each of the, these things in the films, while they may not have specifically been in the Hobbit book itself, Peter Jackson is giving us more of the story, not just to flesh out the movies or make them longer no. or be able to turn them into a trilogy, but to actually better tell the story as Tolkien intended with this, the information from the appendices, with the other information that's going on. Um, you know, like if, if the viewer understands that Gandalf, when he sees the graffiti imprinted on the old ruin as the LOTR Wikia mm-hmm. says, uh, Gandalf sees that. Uh, he hears Gladriel's message you know, asking him to look into the tombs of the Nazgul. Yeah. Uh, we, the viewer, understand what's going on. Yes. The dwarves don't with that. Bilbo right. doesn't with that. And if the tale were being told only from Thorne's perspective or the company's perspective or Bilbo's perspective, the story as a whole would uh, really suffer from that. I think so, too. And 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 the, the disappearance of... Um, uh, of Gandalf would be too convenient just because he needs to be out of the way because otherwise he's just going to solve everything before it becomes a problem. But it makes sense. I mean, now you have a reason and uh, Peter Jackson, I think, does that very well and well, reasonably respectfully. I just, again, it's like, it's all there. I, I just feel in terms of pacing, sometimes a little bit more. Uh, like for, for Azog and the Necromancer, I was surprised that they took so much time and there is so much of it. Um, that was not necessary, but uh, it worked. It works to establish the fact that Azog is just not just uh, a, an evil, menacing orc, but he is uh, under direct command of the Necromancer and there's a bigger plan. It makes, it makes uh, Azog so much more threatening. What did you think about the way the necromancer was portrayed? Keep in mind that, you know, Tolkien is extremely um, shy on giving any details about about what the necromancer is supposed to look like or what he's supposed to be. I I really do like the way the necromancer was portrayed, uh, not because that is exactly how I imagined him or exactly how I think Tolkien intended him to be. But Tolkien is vague in his impressions. And even in the Silmarillion, when they talk about imprisoning, uh, I just blanked on his name. Riley, do you remember? Imprisoning. Like, no, no, I have to have some comments. It's been years or? since I read the yeah, Silmarillion. But mm. uh, when they talk about imprisoning the evil bad guy, I'll put it that way, oh, okay. um, into a dark space, uh, you know, you are beginning to delve more into the center good and evil. You're beginning to delve far more into the spiritual aspect of the Tolkien universe. Yeah. So I think Morgoth. that... Yes, Morgoth. Thank Internet you. cheat. <laughs> <laughs> Internet cheat. Yes, when they imprisoned Morgoth in the Silmarillion, you don't get the sense of, oh, he's thrown into a cage or he's thrown into a jail with iron bars or something or he's chained up. You know, you get this sense that he's in prison sort of in his own space and time. Right. It's more metaphysical. It's metaphysical. So we're delving more into the metaphysical when it comes to Sauron. 
And I like that that's portrayed and shown to be the case. Sauron is not to be easily understood by the human or the mortal mind. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the best way to portray a, a, a frightening villain is not to show it. Yes. When you, when you give the, when the audience sees it, you can understand and, and relate on some level to what you see. But when it's unseen, uh, it's like it's classic horror, horror movie tropes, only it works well in any context where that when something's hidden and mysterious, it becomes more uh, menacing. I was actually surprised that it wasn't more scary. Um, I mean, you definitely feel the threat. And I thought that the 3D worked really to the advantage of the way that um, we experienced this scene because of the, with all the clouds and you, when, when at one point the necromancer, the cloud passes through Azok, you almost feel as if, <gasps> you know, <laughs> it's like scary. But um, knowing Peter Jackson's reputation in his earlier movies where he was very much into horror and, you know, the more outrageous it could be, the better it was. I, I almost felt like he was holding back here if, in order not to scare the younger audience, perhaps. Or. Well, not just that, but uh, Sauron is not in his full power yet. True, true. He's not as threatening as he will be and as he definitely is in Lord of the Rings films. So you kind of get the sense that there's a lot of power there and you should be fearful of it, but it's not fully realized yet. He's not mm-hmm. fully there yet. But Dol Guldur looks a, a lot bigger than it looked in the first movie, um, and I just, I, I just felt like, well, you could, you could film this totally differently, where you, you show like how vast it is, but also how eerie and then how cold it is, and uh, for some reason it was again very much. Let's let's cut to the chase. Let's let's just here's what here's what I want. Here's what I want you to do. You go get Bolg and let's move on. <laughs> but again, yeah. It, it, it worked, and I like the fact that we see a little bit more of the necromancer. I was not very convinced in the first movie, but it was kind of this human-shaped cloud, and it was a bit weird and underwhelming. Here, I was like, oh, okay, now this is, this is more like it. it. It feels like, yes, evil, and it's slowly materializing, and it's getting – it's like this it's – yet it's immaterial, but it's growing, and it's getting darker, and, and, and sometimes – uh, during those scenes, like there was almost like a, a, the blackout of the of all the light. It felt like a suffocating darkness that just not is just covering things, but it 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 almost um, it 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 takes so it eats up the light. That's how it felt, and and I, I think also with the audio power. they did that. Say again. Yeah, you you could feel his power growing basically. Yeah. And I have to go back. This this um, movie was also nominated for uh, an Academy Award for the sound. Uh, I think the sound effects and the sound editing. Um, I, I would have to go back and, and see. I, I almost feel as if almost subconsciously they used sound effects to create that suffoc- suffocation, suffocation or like perhaps like there are sound effects that are reversed or something like that. There was something weird going on. Uh, felt out of place and 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 unsettling, and that's exactly what you want in this scene. So in the meantime, uh, Bilbo and his friends are still blissfully sleeping uh, at Bayorn's house. And the next day, Bayorn loans his horses so that they can ride to Mirkwood, and uh, and 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 that will also shield them a little bit from the pursuing orcs. Now we so we see very again a very brief uh, traveling sequence. Some of it is filmed clearly from a helicopter in New Zealand, and it looks great. And then there's this last scene 
where again I have to be a little bit critical of the special effects where they are um, approaching Mirkwood Mirkwood is on the right and you see these uh, again it's like a shot from a looks from a helicopter but immediately my brain was like this is fake and the second time I saw why it was fake uh, why why my brain told me it was fake it was you see these tiny little horses and they have a very stark shadow on the grass but they did so much color correction that it felt like it was an overcast day. Like, it, uh, apparently, this I, I guess this was just shot on a very sunny day. But if it's too sunny, it didn't work with the forest. And so they drained it from colors. And it became this kind of almost grayish green. And yet you still see those stark shadows as if the sun was supposed to be shining. And it's like, eh, it doesn't work. It looks fake. <laughs> but... Again, it's probably just me, and I doubt that many people take uh, issue with that. I actually, I didn't take issue with it, but now that you say it, I remember the shadows sticking out my mind. I didn't yeah. figure out why. So I was like, horses and shadows. You know, you usually yeah. don't think and shadows when you're watching yeah. a film like that. Well, and it's the it's a, it's a, it's a same reason why, for me, the bunny sled in the first movie didn't work. There's this big chase sequence and the wargs are pursuing the bunny sled and a bunny sled has... There's just too much shadow. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the very important moment, it's the, 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 the Gandalf, well, we already discussed this, gets instructions from Galadriel. This actually um, harkens back to, the, to that meeting that they had at Rivendell, right? Where we, we, we understand that the actually... Um, uh, Galadriel and uh, Gandalf um, have some kind of Middle Middle Earth version of FaceTime, and they can just um, <laughs> communicate at any time. <laughs> and yes. and and clearly, Galadriel here has the bigger picture, and she is telling Gandalf what to do. Is that from the appendices, or is this a Peter Jackson thing? Trying to remember off the top of my head, I can't recall exactly. I mean, um, I if it if it was Peter Jackson, um, I think this was a good addition. I, I it worked for me. It made it it made it much more likely that he would leave the dwarves because there was something even more important at stake. And it's not just oh Gandalf is this jerk that is always <laughs> going on vacation when he's needed most, um, but. It, you know, the, the, it's it's too important for him not to go investigate. So, but but very scary for for Bilbo and the company because they have to enter Mirkwood, and uh, it's dangerous. They cannot stray from the path, and of course, you know that that is going to happen. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing to me about this is that it, it uh, I, I guess you could say harkens back, but in Lord of the Rings in the two towers when Gandalf approaches um, Eowyn he approaches uh, King Theoden mm -hmm. when, uh, when he's called Stormcrow you know a bringer of bad news <laughs> and then Beth Bethany can you get a little bit closer to the microphone because you're Skyping out Skype is not really yeah, picking up your, on, on your voice to, yeah there you <laughs> okay. go. let's try that yes that's better okay and uh, even when he meets um Hmm, I just blanked. Train of thought issues. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's my fault. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's fine. Uh, but people have this view of Gandalf is 
he comes, which means there's trouble. It ruins everything. It ruins everything. And you can kind of see it because Gandalf is always running around Middle Earth kind of fixing things, uh, finding the trouble and trying to help Middle people. Middle Earth handyman of sorts. Yes, Middle Earth handyman. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people that he's left are like, oh, he's gone. What do we do without him? Fair, yeah. Well, and, and in a way, he needs to be out of the picture because otherwise there's no threat. I keep thinking of that. It's like, uh, that's something that, that Tolkien understood very well, even in the first version of The Hobbit. You can't have Gandalf around all the time. Um, the uh, very good point in the chat room. People remind us that Galadriel had the gift, has the gift of foresight. Her mirror can tell her what's going to happen. And, and so that is probably also w what makes her contact Gandalf. And tell him, you know, we need to know more about these tombs uh, of the Nazgul. Again, a very contentious topic. We'll, we'll probably talk about that later. Uh, what to think of that. Because that is definitely an addition um, that is not from, from Tolkien. So, uh, I, I, by the way, also like the fact that there's black speech. and Which is, again, something that uh, Tolkien never truly developed. And so I, I, I assume that for this movie, and I loved, I would love to hear more about it, they must have come up with at least like a basic grammar, um, some words, some vocabulary. The same thing for the Dwarvish, which is also was not truly developed by Tolkien. Uh, but it sounded very convincing, the Necromancer and, and uh, uh, Azog. And it's like, wow, that, that ew, looks... It, it sounds scary. Oh, which reminds me of a beautiful piece of acting. Uh, just flashing back to the, the scene in The uh, Prancing Pony when Gandalf puts this piece of um, uh, parchment on the table. And at first, you see Thorin grabbing the piece of paper or putting his hand on it. And then uh, Gandalf says, it's black speech. And then you see this little jerk. And uh, uh, Thorin uh, jerks back his hand almost as if, oh, that's black speech. I should not touch that. That's a brilliant, brilliant little detail. Fine acting. Back to <laughs> back to uh, uh, Dol Guldur um, and, and to Mirkwood. Gandalf goes away, um, and the the dwarves and Bilbo uh, walk through Mirkwood, and you have that almost delirious scene where they're walking around in circles, and there are, there are tons of cobwebs, also a tons of spider webs, and um, I really like that. <laughs> Bilbo's just sitting there and he's like a bit bored and he's just like doing, doing, and then you hear this, this echo like ding, 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 ding. And, and, and that's like classic horror movie stuff is like uh oh <laughs> right you the why the character do that and yes. the, yeah and, th and then he does it again and you're just like no not a good idea <laughs> But um, what, what did you think of Mirkwood and the way it was depicted? Mirkwood was really, really well done, I thought. And it was really great to see just how much, you know, when we saw those behind-the-scenes videos where we saw how much Peter Jackson was able to kind of make a really colorful version on set, but it darkens. And I was wondering how they would do that. Yeah. The final did look very much like I imagined Mirkwood. So it was exactly like you imagined. It, Pretty much. It, it felt a bit too light for me almost. I could see too much. I, I, in my mind, I, it, it was all, uh, Mirkwood was always a lot darker. And um, 
and also, <clears throat> I think the way it is described is again, it, it's almost as if there's not enough oxygen in the air, and mm -hmm. um, I felt that, that uh, again, it was a bit, it felt a bit rushed. Like within a few minutes, they they had lost the 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 road, the 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 path. Which, by the way, when the camera pans down and shows you where the path truly is, I had a moment where I was like, "That looks like the Golden Brick Road." <laughs> 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 but um, I would have I would have liked to see a little bit more of that. Just them walking around, walking around. Again, uh, just slow down a little bit. And I totally missed that moment where Bomber falls into the water and falls asleep. That is like, oh, why did you leave that out? And 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 Bomber for the second time, this is the second movie where I feel that Bomber is so ignored and is a great character. Also has a lot of, I think, comedic potential. And yet now he's just a background figure. He's one of the dwarfs that we hardly get to see. So, yeah, this, it, but it, that is kind of, there are doors that kind of unfortunately ignore. It's like Biffers and other one. Yeah. Hold on, you have to say that again because you're you're skyping out quite a bit. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, even with Biffer or Bomber, they, they both, ha along with some other doors, kind of have to be ignored. Unfortunately, I guess for time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also you know you cannot highlight every dwarf. I wish there would just be at least one iconic scene per dwarf. If it's only one little thing. But something that you remember, and then I can then I can totally uh, accept that you don't see every dwarf every single time. But now I feel like some dwarves are really ignored. And Bomber, this was really Bomber's moment, <laughs> at least passively. But and I would have loved to see how they would have handled that. I was so looking forward to it, and then they leave it they leave it out and go straight to the spiders. Uh, in the meantime, the chat room, by the way, has has uh, given some information about the Black Speech. Apparently, they hired a li uh, number of linguists to come up with the Black Speech, and uh, they even made uh, Black Speech from Orthanc and Black Speech from Moria and made it different. So isn't isn't that cool? So here's a, a part of an interview. This is an interview with one of those linguists uh, who says, for the Lord of the Rings, uh, I intended to come up with three orcish dialects in addition to black speech. One spoken by the orcs of Mordor would be closely based on black speech, but spoken in a more casual and clipped manner. The other two, the orcish of Isengard and the orcish of Moria, ideally w should have been developed as wholly independent languages touched by black speech only through borrowings. Faced with rapidly approaching deadlines, however, I cheated. I made all of them descendants of black speech via a hypothetical proto-Orcish with the language of Isengard showing several distinguishing sound changes and the language of Moria showing an even more advanced set of sound changes intended to give the Moria goblins a hissing sibil sibilant sound. The guy is, by the way, is called David Solo. Uh, uh, by the way, that's wow. cheating. It's called actually making languages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> David wow. Solo, best family name ever. Um, but fa again, it, sh it shows you that not only go there's a lot of detail and, and care that goes into the costumes and the sets, but even the languages. The, the, amazing. I think that that's one of the things that Tolkien probably would have appreciated about this production. I'm not sure he would liked, would have liked everything, but, you know, them taking up the legacy of, of creating these languages and developing them. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so they lose the way. Then we get the the spiders. Lazy um, lob and crazy cop. Say that again. <laughs> oh, lazy lob and crazy cop. Yeah, this is one of my favorite sequences in the books. Yeah. And so, what did you think of the way that it was shown in this movie? I really liked it. all the way up until towards the end. We talked about it a little bit, and there's something about the way that I kind of feel like Bilbo's hero moment was stolen from just a little bit because of the appearance of everyone's favorite female elf. So you think Toriel entered the scene a bit too quickly? Not too quickly. No. But I felt like there's a certain amount of detraction. It didn't ruin it to where Bilbo doesn't truly save the day like he did in the book. Hmm. Yeah. Because the elves are actually finishing the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I I did love the moment where he puts on the ring and and slowly starts to understand what these what these spiders are saying. And 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 you, you that was yeah oh, that was awesome. And and then he takes off the ring and and that this is so subtle. But you actually can still understand a bit of the of the spider language, even though he has already taken off the ring, and and bit by bit you you don't understand anything at all anymore. So it's it's again it's a, I think done deliberately to show that the ring is actually the power of the ring is not just tied to the moment that you wear it. It becomes it starts to pervade your 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 being. Um, and it's growing that power, and which is also shown, and, and that was another scene that I thought was fantastic. When he loses the ring, and he goes and searches for it, even leaving the dwarves behind, he's obsessed with finding the ring. And the moment he sees it, at that time, there is this spider. But it's not just one of the big spiders. It's actually um, a puppy spider. <laughs> not sure if that's the word. Spider. A spiderlet? A spiderling? <laughs> My little spider. And so, and, 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 and there's this rage that, that, like, you see Bilbo completely losing it, and he goes over the top, killing that spider. And, and you have that fantastic thing where he just, he picks up the, the ring and he looks to us. He looks at the camera and he says, Mine. Oh wow! Is that... At that moment, Father, the entire theater erupted in applause. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you have to wonder with this scene if perhaps the ring's power is a little stronger in a dark place like Mirkwood, uh, because Mirkwood, you feel that suffocation, you feel the the evil lurking, you feel the spiders are crawling around. And you feel it's like Tariel says, true. <laughs> <laughs> you feel like Tariel says that there is this darkness spreading. Yeah. And you have to wonder if Bilbo is just feeling the ring's power increasing. I think so. And actually, this is another thing I th- uh, that I don't remember from the books, but I think it is introduced by Peter Jackson that. Um, and when I say Peter Jackson's, all the other people that wrote, of course, the script. But um, it, it, feel, it felt to me like the ring shows, again, something we already know, that it has a will of its own. And I think the reason that it wants to get lost is to 
create even more want in Bilbo. So Bilbo would not be aware of how important that ring is for him if he had had it all the time. But the fact that the ring gets away and he has to pursue it makes the moment that he actually kills to get it back, it bonds him with the ring so much more. It's like, mine! And you can see that he's like reminiscing like what Gollum you know he's turning into Gollum if he's not careful and I thought that was so good fantastic and so out of character for Bilbo and 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 you see uh, that was other another moment where I thought sheer brilliance the acting where after he says that and he he has the ring and then for a few seconds, and I so, I'm so glad that they took the time for this. For a few seconds, there is still this rage and this, this, this. Oh, he looks like a, a drug addict, and he's like, ah. Oh. And then he he calms down, and that's the moment that he puts his hand over his mouth, and he starts to realize the power of the ring and what this thing is doing to him. And you, and you see him breaking down, and it's this is without words. So incredible. The acting there is just fantastic. Um, let's see what, what happens then. Um, the, that, that's when they get captured, of course, by the wood elves. And Bilbo follows them uh, cloaked uh, thanks to the ring. Um, we enter the underground realm or the cave of Thranduil. Um, and I'm, I'm going to speed up a little bit the story here. They're brought in front of Thranduil. Um, and Thorin is given the, uh, the opportunity to strike a deal with Thranduil. But Thorin being Thorin is like, no. <laughs> and they are imprisoned. And uh, the other dwarves, are, some of them are like, yeah, that went well. <laughs> great, great job, Thorin. <laughs> Good. Let's not make a deal. Let's stay here for the rest of our lives. <laughs> But, right, uh, and you can kind of you can almost sense some of the dwarves' frustration with Thorin because yeah. they know Thorin's pride and mm-hmm. and they put up with it. They they respect Thorin anyway, but they they know that there's that pride there, and they know that it's just gotten them in more trouble. Yes, yes, yes. You know what? Um, there's a little bit of uh, uh, Skype um, uh, disturbance here. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to reconnect. Perhaps that will solve some of the problems. Um, since we've been talking for quite a while right right now, so um, that might be actually a good natural moment to do that. In the meantime, while we are re-establishing the Skype link, I want to play a bit of a video that I found, which is an interview with Peter Jackson and some of the people from the Hobbit cast that talk, and this was filmed a year ago. They had already finished all the shooting. Um, I think they were in the process of, of doing some retakes and they were, of course, in full swing on the special effects. And this and the interviewer, this is from Total Film Magazine, they asked Peter Jackson and some of the people from the Hobbit cast which scenes they were looking forward most to showing uh, the, the movie audience. Very interesting because it also reveals that actually, uh, originally, in the planning, the movie would end at a different moment and not with this huge cliffhanger. Let's listen to Peter Jackson and what Martin Freeman, Kate Blanchett, Andy Serkis, and some others. In the desolation of Smaug. The desolation of Smaug. Well, I mean, I, there's a lot of scenes that haven't yet been shaped because there's a lot of visual effects still to come. 
Um, but one scene that's relatively early in the in the film, um, which we have done a lot of work on already, is the dwarves escaping from the woodland realm in barrels, which I think is going to be quite a, a ride. Quite a ride, yeah. Hello? What's amazing yeah, you're back. The, the town of Dale, hey. I also switched so microphones. This might actually help a little a bit. Okay, good. So beautiful. We're listening to the video right uh, now. My family saw that. I didn't actually see that. But I saw the aftermath, and it was just—it was like looking down on a war scene. It was like a documentary footage of desolation, mm. despair, kind of embers. I mean, just astonishing. So you see what happens here? Um, they are—they are talking about the destruction of um, uh, of of Lake Town, like the the the, the desolation of Schmaug, right? So I, I guess that they're still under the assumption that that is going to be the end of the second movie. And we don't get to see that. Well, mm. I can't really give too much Interesting. Away, uh, this is Andy Serkis. Uh, but just, just uh, you know, the, 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 the Lake Town sequences are, are pretty phenomenal, actually. They're pretty extraordinary. I really can't say too much about them but because they, cause they, they were, it's a definite spoiler alert. But, uh, you know, so, but, but they are, but they are, again, what Peter's so brilliant at doing is uh, throughout all this incredible epic action and, and terrifying action um, is, is seeing the human story within it. And, uh, and, and that's what we always endeavoured to do in, in all of, in fact, it goes, it's, it's a rule. I think that's one of the things I learned most about filmmaking from Peter is, 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 is you know, at the end of the day, no matter how big the canvas, it's always about, it's always about the human emotions at the, at the heart of it all. There's, there's so much that that's the introduction of all the new characters that we're obviously looking forward to seeing and uh, and, and and obviously so much of it that we're not in also I mean there's there's, uh, there's, there's real excitement there's real buzz already I, I feel about the second movie for the yeah. actors you know really when I see a film that, that Peter's directed it's strap your seatbelts and Kate Blanchett be who plays in for a surprise because that's the thing is even when you're on set you don't fully know the magic that's going to happen because there's so many processes that, that go into um, post the actual filming that it's, um, I'm, I'm just preparing to be surprised. Well, hopefully the dragon. <laughs> but right now, you know, what, what we've seen in the first film, uh, you know, we, we're teasing it for the audience, we're also teasing it for ourselves. That's about as much as we've really worked through for him because we know that uh, there's likely to be adjustments once we really start working through his performance. So yeah, we haven't locked that down yet. I'm really looking Joe forward Leteria to Bale's house. Was it's one of my favourite parts of the book. Uh, the special effects I guy. This is a Thor and Oka Shield. And the, the way that that set was built, I, it was incredible. I spent hours walking around that set fascinated with the work that they'd done. So that's going to be a real treat. What are you excited about audiences mm. seeing in the desolation of Smaug? Uh, well, Smaug himself, I think, is going to be fantastic. Martin I think Freeman? those scenes between him and Bilbo are really, really good. Um, the barrels, I think, are going to be good. Um, this is pretty much all the stuff I'm in, you know. I think you know, and, and that's not me being selfish. That's me being selfless. I want to give the audience a good time, and I know I'm not thinking of me. I'm thinking of them, and they're going to have a better life once they've seen what I'm doing. Not big-headed, Sam. I'm just telling the truth. <laughs> so there you go. A little flashback to the days where we had no idea what this movie would bring us. Um, but interesting, isn't it, that that at the time there was this at least this expectation among the actors that we would see the the destruction of Lake Town, and uh, Circus is definitely hinting at that as well. Although he might, in theory, also be talking about the attack of the orcs on Lake Town. 
All right, let's hope that Skype is a little bit nicer to us now that I we're think so. back from uh, the break. In fact, like I, I did uh, some, some tweaks on the board over here on the on the uh, on the Georgia annex. It definitely and, uh, sounds. Hopefully, it seems to be a little bit better. So. Yeah, it definitely sounds better. So that's good. Right, we were um, uh, in in um, uh, the the realm of uh, Thranduil, uh, and of course, this introduces us to I think a very important point of discussion, and that is, of course, the romance between mm. Keeley and Toriel and the love triangle of Legolas, Kili, and Toriel and then Thranduil as the father of Legolas who is like, hmm. What did you think? Because this is new. This is invented for the movie. Did it work? Did it not work? I'll let you talk first. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is... This- how do I, where to begin? Where to begin? Okay. I felt that almost all the deviations in this film thematically worked really well. Almost entire, uh, like the the necromancer sequences, the even the a lot of the the kind of souped up action scene towards the end of the film, uh the addition of Tariel I felt worked very well in the film and was actually important culturally today to have that kind of strong female warrior presence in the film. And I thought it actually fit very well within the realm of Tolkien. But there is a moment, it's, it's difficult to describe where you draw that line. And, I, and I'm not even sure if I, I have the answer to this question. But I know it wasn't handled well. And that was, there's a line where if you're trying to include a strong female presence, as I think should happen, I think that was a good call, mm-hmm. that where there are certain Hollywood for lack of a better term, marketing tropes that you want to fit the bill of a female character that start to conflict with the core part of the story of The Hobbit. So when it comes to changes to the film, I welcome them as long as, and of course this is a deeply personal thing, but as long as it's consistent with that mythology that I'm familiar with as a huge Tolkien fan, and I feel like the addition of Tariel is consistent with that. Mm-hmm. It, it, as well as Legolas. But when it comes down to the idea of the romance specifically, even that I don't think I would be innately opposed to other than that the way it was handled. And the, the plot of the specifically the third act of this film was fundamentally transformed in ways to make room for this romance in a way that I think damaged the film. Mm-hmm. So that's I, there was a line somewhere that was crossed, and I'm not even exactly sure where it was. I don't think I'm an innately opposed to the uh, to the romance itself. I was prepared for it. I had heard about it going into the film, but the minute I realized that that line had been crossed was the moment uh, while they're imprisoned and uh, Keeley makes the quip about I could have anything down my trousers, and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. that's distinctly out. That that was an out of yeah, Tolkien would probably experience. never yeah. write something like that. <laughs> yeah, and that's where, and, and, and I think the, the, the line was crossed at some point before that moment, but that was when, okay, I definitely know. And then, of course, that informed the, 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 where they split the company, and I felt like that was, a, that was not a good decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was primarily to give Tariel significance in the film, I think. Yes. And, and I'm, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think that's very important to when we're talking about this, where... If you're trying to give her, her significance, the way to do it was not to fundamentally transform the the final act of the film. Mm-hmm. 
if you want to have a confrontation be- between Smaug and Thorin, I think that can be consistent with the story, even though there wasn't one in the book. But it, to split off part of the company and leave them in, in Lake Town and add the whole plot of, of Keeley being injured and having to be healed only by Tariel and she's given a mission, that sort of thing, I think that was all of that kind of left kind of these twinges in me where as I, ah, because it's, it's like I had no problem at all with Arwen's um, mm-hmm. role in Fellowship of the Ring, even though it was much more minimal in the books. Yeah. The fact that she, she was responsible for saving Frodo, I think that was, well, that was consistent. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we can kind of talk this through. It's going to be like our little Tariel therapy sure. session. Sure, sure. Uh, where I'm not sure why, but there was a difference between, I think there was a difference between the way Arwen was handled in Fellowship of the Ring yes. and Tariel was here. And I'm not really sure where that is. Well, I felt that Arwen was much more... In the background, uh, despite the fact that, she, that there was this chase and everything, but still her role was minimal and it did not break the flow of the story. It, 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 you're right. It did not completely change a number of very no, fundamental would, uh, elements. Can I play devil's advocate for yeah, just sure, a moment, Father? Because mm-hmm. even think about it, because like there's a whole sequence where where Aragorn nearly dies, and she comes and rescues him, and then there's the whole plot of her fading and almost dying into the because she chooses to be with the man, and that was all not from the books, mm-hmm. but that, there was still something different. So I think some would make the argument that Tariel is just a a newer version uh, it, with the same idea of. Um, you know, with the same idea as Arwen, but I don't think that's true. I think I, I agree with you, but I think there's a school of thought that would defend mm-hmm. that. Well, what I do believe is that it, this is clearly a, a lot of the elements of of um, the interaction between Keeley and Toriel are are meant to create this parallel with the Lord of the Rings. Um, the, you know, the Keeley getting getting this this black poison in his blood and going to die, and then. Toriel being this lovely, almost a bit, also tries to evoke Galadriel and the effect that she had on the dwarves, you know, this luminous being. And she has, of course, the secret recipe to heal Keely. And um, I don't know, it, 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 clearly, I, 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 I like that kind of stuff. I like the parallels. Uh, it, it made me much more aware of how much the Lord of the Rings actually is, is in a way, is building on the stuff that Tolkien already did in The Hobbit. I didn't realize that as strongly as after having seen this. So to emphasize that a little bit more visually, that's great. What for me was the big problem was that if you want to have a believable love triangle, there needs to be romantic tension. Um, the problem for me was that Legolas, Orlando Bloom, t- I didn't feel any chemistry between him and Toriel. I, I, for some reason, I, Orlando Bloom played his role in this movie in a very almost mechanical way. Um, so much more from a distance, and I, I was like, "You're." It felt as if he was just sleeping his way through through this movie, and. I don't know. Perhaps I'm just frustrated that he gets such a like a major role, and even in the credits, you know, his his name gets like is there's just his name, and you can feel this is all negotiated. This, this is, and but in a way, I was so disappointed by Legolas in this movie. As much as I like his character and the and the bickering between uh, him and um, and what's his name, uh, the dwarf. Uh, blanking out here. Gimli? Gimli. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of humor. 
I, there is no humor here at all in with with, uh, with um, Legolas. Well, there was one moment where they do reference Gimli. Yeah, yeah, that that's great. But that the humor there is is not really by thanks to Orlando Bloom. I thought it was much more thanks to the reactions uh, by the dwarves. But so that was why I felt that um, that Toriel uh, being charmed by Keeley felt a bit improbable and also there Evangeline Lily um I mean she does play an elf clearly uh, she has the whole, the behavior even the way that she's filmed is kind of like from below so you're you're in the perspective of of Keely um but she too is very kind of noble distant and I yeah. I can feel that Keely is charmed by that but the other way around, I don't, I don't see it. Um, I, I was almost waiting for a moment, and I try. I think they tried to do that with the stone, you know, with the the the, the runes on it. That you you want Toriel to actually melt a little bit, you just like get off your high horse there and stop being an elf all the time. Um, but for some reason, I, like it's almost as if she's more. Um, Looking at Keely as a child, like she's charmed because she's kind of childlike and she's like the big rescuer. But I didn't feel like what, what is Keely actually offering her? Um, I don't know. It, well, that, if I kind of respond to what both of you were saying. Sure. With Riley, with Riley's point about how the plot was sort of constructed to make room for Tariel and to make room for Legolas, I felt like the decision to leave Keely behind simply fit with Thorin's character at the moment and had nothing to do with Tariel. Okay. Thorin's character goes because, you know, they're supposed to wait well, for Gandalf when they get there and Thorin's like, hey, do you see Gandalf? We're going ahead. Yeah, we're going ahead. So Thorin yeah. is all in the mindset of Arkenstone, Arkenstone, Arkenstone. True. That's, that's, you're right about that. Yes. Well, and um, to construct, to, to further that point, like, and I think this is a good thing, and we'll we'll discuss the end of the film in detail. But I think I want to bring, I, and this is something I put down in my notes last night as, as I was thinking about it. I kind of think the the whole action sequence at, at Lake Town, where Tariel comes to the rescue, that if I like, if I were the objective filmmaker, um, first of all, I would never do nearly as good a job as Peter Jackson. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Mm-hmm. But like as I see it, I kind of think the action at Lake Town takes the audience's attention away from the core part of the story, the dragon, the mission, and mm-hmm. Thorin's story. And, and I think that Tariel could have been present as part of the story, and instead there was kind of a divide of two different directions yeah. that the film went. It's like parallel stories and instead of one supporting the other. Yeah, but with Tariel and with Legolas, I see them both as... At this point, they're both very young for elves. Mm-hmm. They're both very inexperienced. Like a mere 200 in years or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so I think that that lo- loans itself more to Legolas's coldness, to his stiffness of character, and his. Um, hmm. He's definitely emotional in that, you know, he's irritated when he sees mm-hmm. Tariel talking with Keeley, and he's easily moved to be rash, but he doesn't have the caring that comes with having developed relationships with having a more mature viewpoint of relationships and with what's going on around them. I feel like Tariel sees that in Keeley and that's more of what attracts her to Keeley. She sees someone who is willing to be more emotional, someone who might care about her 
uh, someone who cares about the company. Yeah. Keeley is a very, um, he, not necessarily fully emotional in a bad way, but Keeley is a very caring dwarf. And he's very fun-loving. And he's basically the opposite of Legolas's stiffness at this That's point. That's a very good point. You, you, you actually might be right. This might be uh, on purpose. And, and that Keely is, is actually bringing her what she misses. Uh, but I, it's, it's funny because I've, 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 we've gotten to know Legolas so well. And really, a, I, I love his role in, in The Lord of the Rings. And here he feels like... I, at one point, I had a flashback to the way that Qui-Gon Jinn was, was done in the prequels. Where I was like, man, I can't believe they they got this fantastic actor, and then yet he's playing it as a robot. And then afterwards, you hear, well, that was on purpose because blah blah blah. Jedi have to be uh, non-emotional, and but still, I like, I want to see something else. <laughs> but for, again, it might be all on purpose. Um, but for some reason, I still did. For me, the romance was not as convincing as. Uh, Arwen and uh, and Strider. No, it didn't come oh, close. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think that it was convincing because I don't think that it really was going anywhere. You could see the yeah. longing on Keeley's part, mm-hmm. but even when he is only semi-conscious, you know, he talks about she's too far away yeah. because even he sees that it, it's not convincing because it really can't go anywhere. Yeah. It's not going to. It's kind of sad. That's my favorite music. Yep. My, Favorite part of the entire score of the film was that was that theme actually. Mm. Yeah, and and with Tariel, you know, she sees something that she wants, but at the same time, she doesn't really seem to believe that it can happen either. Uh, her coldness, I think, comes more from she's fighting her feelings at this point because yeah. she doesn't think she should have them. Yeah, and it's, it's it kind of makes her to a, a tragic heroine because. She cares the most of all the elves, I think. She, 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 she has vision, knows that there's more at stake, and she is ready to uh, you know, go after the dwarves and, and, and give her life in a way. At the same time, she's both. She knows that, that um, uh, Legolas is impossible. Thranduil coldly says that. You know, my, my son is not going to... Yeah, <laughs> I freed his head from his miserable body. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thranduil is horrible. You don't want to have him as a uh, a father-in-law, and 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 she also knows that that this romance with Keely is probably gonna gonna go nowhere. So that makes her actually, uh, well, yeah, a tragic figure. And I think <laughs> I've said this so many times. I think it's not gonna end well for poor Toriel. Uh, <laughs> no, I think you're right. <sighs> But uh, then we get finally, finally, Bilbo is back. I mean, there's not enough Bilbo in this movie. I, Can I? Just, I yeah, I want to repeat that. There is not enough Bilbo in this film. There you go. And once, once we see him and he does his thing, you're just like, oh, this is what the movie is supposed to be. I loved, 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 loved his his the way in which he frees the dwarves. All the little, I mean, the the, the humor that you had between. Uh, Legolas and Kim and Gimli. That's what you have now between Bilbo and the dwarves. Like he he opens up their um, their uh, their prison cells and they immediately start yelling. And Bilbo is like, "Shh, don't, don't!" And it's so funny because you totally feel like Bilbo. And then that smirk on his face when he has helped them, you know, get into the barrels. And and, and these dwarves are so hard to manage. And then finally, 
they get away thanks to him. And then he stands there. And that, that was the moment that the entire theater, both times that I saw the movie, uh, laughed so loud. And because he's like standing there and then he starts to realize that, wait a minute, what about me? <laughs> it's the, the acting is so subtle. It's oh, uh, and that, that 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 carries me back to like that moment in the first film where it's after all the doors have left, mm-hmm. and it's just him walking yeah, through yeah. the house by himself, and there's no dialogue. Yep. It's like Martin Freeman can carry these scenes yes. so well, and he has these little um, uh, ticks that he has where he moves his fingers, or I forgot what he does, but he, oh no, he has his, this, this. He moves his mouth and his nose a little bit. He makes that yeah, like twitch, a, the nose hmm. twitch. Yeah. yeah, the nose twitch. The bewitched like, from and the sixties. That, that's usually when when he realizes, um, nah, this wasn't too smart. <laughs> but uh, it was great, and and then we get the the big barrel scene, which goes on forever. Feels to me like uh, something you'd see in a theme park, but to me, I. Loved it. I was just okay. I, popcorn yeah. movement, mo- popcorn movie moment. Let's just enjoy this. <laughs> like the 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 laugh out loud moment of the movie for me and for the whole theater when we saw it was when Bomber. Yes. <laughs> took off down the, at that point, see, as some I think there is a healthy amount of there are good times to have that kind of gratuitous fun yeah. visual yeah. Uh, addition. And that was where I thought I thought the barrels out of bond sequence was was perfect mm-hmm. um, to to put it in that visual medium. Yeah, and and, and there was a lot of uh, surfboarding by Legolas as well. <laughs> several mo- several times where he uses like the shields of the orcs and not to to do his his uh, surfing thing uh, in the middle of a battle. I thought the the entire uh, sequence, also the attacks, it was choreographed so well. Ah, oh. and and man, it was just it. it at, we we knew that this was going to be a big scene, and and we saw in the production videos all the footage that they shot in this endless uh, like water circle that they created. But then when you see the the final result, how do you come up with all these things? Because <laughs> every t- there's always something happening. It's not just them going down the river for for ten minutes. No, it's like every. 20 seconds there is a, there's a new threat and, and a new resolution of something and fantastic and also uh, an interesting moment where Legolas actually um, I think at one point he kills an orc that is about to kill Thorin mm-hmm. and there's yeah. this one moment where he's like huh interesting he makes a different choice than his father here he saves Thorin he gets involved and that, that I like that you almost see him pause afterwards as if he's thinking to himself, now why did I do that? Yeah. Because <laughs> he's supposed to catch these escaping dwarves, but he, he doesn't. So, yeah. I, it's those little subtle, subtle things that make this movie very special, I think. Uh, but anyway, it's just an, an action sequence, so what can we say about it? It is just very well done, and it's awesome. I, I, did, I did feel that the orcs get into um get over the uh, over the the fortress or get in too easily yeah somebody at the elf guard there needs to be fired yeah. i'm just saying <laughs> it's like you just climb that wall and jump over it and then you're inside and you can kill lots of elves i'm not sure anyway the that leads us into of course um the uh, confrontation with Bart the Bowman, you get that famous shot that we saw in the trailer where he points his 
arrow at them and um and you get the uh, the 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 bargaining where uh well let's just buy our way into lake time what the... simple merchants from the blue mountains yes. <laughs> we need more gold come with your gold no i've already paid too much <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like he is really the grandfather of all Valen, of the wars. Oh man, he's just—he gives advice to them. He's so wise, you know. He doesn't have yeah. sort of the rashness or the pride that Thorin has. Yeah, uh, and he's just—I'm so glad that he that he was portrayed the way that yeah. he was. Yeah, again, my favorite door from the books, and he's so well done in the mm, films. He's extremely likable. That whole encounter. When you first Bard, of course, doesn't actually meet them. They actually get all the way to Lake Town. But I, th I think it was good to introduce him to the film early because mm -hmm. that was one thing from the books that I remember reading it the first time. As you know, I was what probably maybe twelve, eleven years old when I first read The Hobbit, and just thinking, who is this Bard guy, and why did he kill the dragon? I remember being upset that Thorin wasn't the one to kill Smog, or Smaug. Uh, and so it was. It, I'm glad that they're kind of giving him that the family background and a little bit more screen time. And, and this introduction to him was really well done. Yes, I think so too. And I, I like the whole, um, he's like all these phases where he, he, he needs to smuggle them in and then the, he buys the fish and <laughs> you got all these, like, hi, oh, he's, he's, he's selling us out. And <laughs> you get all the, 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 the fish being poured in the, in the in the barrels and uh, I, I love just the visually fantastic Blake Town, one of the most beautiful sets, miniatures and, and and sequences that I've seen so far in this movie. It's unbelievable, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I I keep wondering, you know, what was truly built and what is just uh, painted in, but I I feel like most of Lake Town was real, at least it felt very real. And the fact that you have to wonder if that, and you think, is this real? Well, is this CGI? I remember seeing a lot of in? exactly. Yeah. Uh, it that shows to me that they have definitely done really well visually with the film. Yeah, we also get introduced to um, what's his name again? It's this worm tongue like guy. Oh yeah, the master <laughs> of Lake Town's servant. Yeah, he's very creepy, and he's got this big bulging like. What is it on his face? Like, it's like someone who never washes himself. <laughs> and yeah. immediately you get the cue. This is this is a dangerous guy. Um, you don't really understand why he is so anti-Bard. Uh, I mean, there is a little bit of politics in it. But mm, the, the, um, the, the, the ruler of Lake Town, um, what did you think of him? I mean, there's this first disgusting moment where he wakes up and... Oh. Um, he has to empty the 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 the, the pee. It's the chamber pot. Yeah, <laughs> has to throw it out of the window, but he fails, and then like most of the pee ends up on his clothes and on the on the couch and everything. <laughs> so oh, I was <laughs> repelled by it, and then immediately that gives me a cue that it there it must smell so horrid inside, and this is such a like a. a long lost glory this guy he he um the the, the whole the lake town plot uh, i liked it i thought yeah. it were but I, it wasn't enough they had promised us like this a lot of politics in here and so i was expecting an even better dialogue so i i was a bit disappointed at the end it was like hmm I, I expected it to be also a little bit more, but but uh, meh. 
I don't know. What What are your feelings about uh, Lake Town? And I felt that as well, um, definitely with Lake Town sequence because I I remember very clearly the sequence in the books and while I liked the look of Lake Town and the people and how and several of the well like the helicopter type shots mm-hmm. uh, that showed more of it, the sequence did feel pretty clippy, pretty short yeah. and. I guess that goes back to the feeling of the film being rushed. Uh, I, I almost feel like the, the whole film could have benefited more from a shorter uh, Thorin versus Smaug scene mm-hmm. and everything else to have a little bit more time added yeah. to it. Breathing space for uh, for moments like this. Yeah. Well, it was, it was great to see. Like I, the one, my favorite part about the whole sequence was finding out about Girion of Lakestown and this the tale of how they um, originally. Uh, yeah. went after Smog and you got some of that history behind mm-hmm. of why again establishing why it's important yeah. or Bard to, is going to be the one who ultimately defeats Smog um, although they do introduce the black arrow what do you yeah. uh, father what do you think of that whole the uh, the whole the, the, the magic huge arrow uh, <laughs> well actually I thought it was uh, it was totally different from what I expected I thought it was just going to be a regular arrow you know, and instead it's this big device. This is uh, how would you call that? A dwarven wind lance, as they yeah, call it. Yeah, windland, and it's on a tower. And then when when I saw it, it's like you know what? That makes sense. It's a huge dragon. You're just not going to use a regular bow and arrow. That wouldn't work. So uh, yeah, actually, I kind of that was interesting. And I was like, now I want to see how um, how this pays off. They're setting it up here, but uh, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. They- well, fun fact, Luke Evans also portrayed Garion. I don't know if you noticed that underneath all the beard and prosthetics. Oh, really? I yeah. have no idea. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I actually really liked that. It was very different from what I expected, but it made sense the, the way they, uh, they showed it. What, for me, was the big um, problem with the whole Lake Town thing was what we mentioned earlier. Is this whole Keeley being wounded by this uh, Morgul arrow to create the similarity yeah. with Frodo being, well, like, you know, wounded by the, by the, by the, 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 the spirits? Um, and and it, and you get the orcs, and it becomes almost this. It, it reminded me of those uh, Oriental movies, like the what is it, the the dragon movie where the, the with the orcs on the rooftops, or or like yeah, it's like the third <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean sequence at the beginning. Yeah, you know? yeah, it, it was a bit. I don't know, and it, it's like well, and it's, I mean, it's it's so close that you could actually, I mean, make it work in some ways, and and have had tension there, but like with like. Of uh, what was it like the black? It wasn't called a black arrow. Um, it was like the Morgul arrow. Uh, yeah. Really, a Morgul arrow. The point of the Morgul dagger was the fact that it was carried yeah. by the Witch King of Anvar. Yes, yes. And, I mean, there's real power there. Like, well, here's just some random. He's like, we stuck him with a, you know, a Morgul arrow. And I'm yeah, like, really? I happen to have one. Left. I just like <laughs> it was. It was. It was too convenient. Um, yeah, and I. I on a, on a larger picture, I still really enjoyed this film and these sequences. Mm-hmm. But like, as you get into the third act specifically, I think these are where there's these little moments that uh, this is what makes it not quite my yeah. favorite compared to the mm-hmm. unexpected journey. Is when you have these moments where it's just there's something that's lost with the theme of the book, and I, you know, more glare or no more. It doesn't really that specifically it doesn't matter it's kind of what it indicates where that was obviously a plot device to yeah. bring in 
you know, Keeley's injury sure. and then Tariel's sure. significance in the in the last act of the film. And when which, you when you think form, yeah. that while you're watching the film, you think, oh, well, they did this because of that, right. so that she can do this. Yes. When you when you think that consciously, that's when it's taking you out of the out of the story. I think. True. The thing I have to ask about that though is. Would the normal moviegoer even think that without having? Yeah, read is this just us? Books? Yeah, are we just being? No, I think it's nerd? us. But I, I, I do believe that it does. The problem that I had is, 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 it's not necessary. It does not help the, the, the overall story arc, and it's detracting. It, I want, I want Lake Town. I would have been totally okay if Lake Town was just politics, and show me this, this ruler of Lake Town in his all his ugliness and his compromises and selfishness and do more of what we saw in in the return of the king and 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 give me more of that and i don't want more fight scenes and it, you know what this is this was my biggest moment of criticism when you have finally have the the orc attack and toriel and legolas uh, uh enter the picture as well there is a lot of fighting between legolas and and countless orcs and it it looks so mechanical and it's like he it, it, again it was just so cold and there is no danger whatsoever it's just legolas is this killing machine and he doesn't even twitch and it's all it looked like ballet you know it's like b this big choreographed fight but there is no, it does nothing with me uh emotionally and yeah it feels like a fight scene from the matrix almost yes not Necessarily in but in style, the Matrix, but... I kind of liked it. It was at least they were wearing sunglasses. <laughs> you don't even have sun sunglasses here, but it feels. I was bored. I was like, "Get it over with. Bring me to the mountain." Well, and yeah. see, and that's where like the great tool that you could have used during the Lake Town sequence that they didn't touch on enough was when they talk about the Black Arrow. And I'm and I'm remembering vaguely from the book. I know that. See, and and when I saw the film, I didn't remember it at all. But when later I was learned the the Black Arrow is something from the book. It's just not the large, huge uh, one. It's it is, but it is something that's forged by Thror. Mm -hmm. And when you, like the Heirs of Durin sequence where uh, Bard goes and finds the old rug, which by the way, as someone who grew up in mm -hmm. in, in Central Asia. Uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, in the, in that area, um, the idea of woven rugs in the culture is very, very poignant, and they're in fact mm. used to preserve stories and history. Oh, really? Um, wow! Yeah, it, there, it, there's a traditional rug called an Afghan mm -hmm. um, that it, it, it's transcended into British culture from when they ruled the land. Sorry, I'm going to nerd yeah. out for, on history for a second. No problem. <laughs> that um, when when uh, rug weavers would would weave these stories into uh, a carpet as as it's woven, and as if you follow the edge of the carpet, it would tell it tells a story. And in fact, um, along the Silk Road, because of Christian uh, missionaries uh, over the years, uh, a very common representation is the tale of the of the fish, and uh, and the multitude of of people that were fed based on the baskets of fish in the New Testament. And so you, you'll see that pattern. Uh, and in fact, like our family owns carpets from when we from when we lived overseas, uh -huh. and so that's that kind of cultural significance. That's the kind of thing that fits perfectly into the film. As you're like, well, here's the old story, and here's the old prophecy as yeah. told on a woven rug. And I thought, man, that's perfect. And it's like only a brief moment, and then I'll, oh, we're back to the yes, uh, the yeah. Voice. It was. I mean, th th I remember this was a huge part of the last trailer that we saw. And you see, and and you have this beautiful poem that was kind of a bit rephrased for the movies, but worked really, really well with oh, the fire, etc. 
Um, but you're right. Like we're pulled out of it too quickly for gratuitous orc killing that we had already seen twice in the movie now. And it's like, uh, not again. But, oh well. Apparently the public likes it. And if, if this had been just politics and mythology, then some people might have think it might have thought it was boring. But, uh, I don't know. It's just one of the least favorite moments, the orc fighting there. Um, but the what I did like is when we go back to with the you know the, the 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 group of dwarves that do make it to the mountain, and with Bilbo they seek for the the secret entrance, and that is all. I love that. That felt very mm. much like uh, stuff from the from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the moment that they discover that Bilbo is the only one who stays, who is not as rash and emotional as the dwarves, you know, I will just give up. It was all for nothing. And, uh, and then Bilbo is like, Hmm. And he does his little nose twitch again. And he's like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The last light of the day, uh, moonlight. <laughs> they should have known by now yeah. that moonlight actually makes, ma- reveals stuff on paper. That seen that in the first movie already in, in Rivendell, right? <laughs> uh, well, it, say again. Oh, I think the Skype connection is actually lost here for a second. But um, while I reconnect... Oh, hold on. Let me just uh, call you again here uh, for a second. Um, let's see if this works. So, I But I did like the fact that Bilbo is... Oh, you're back, I think. Hey, sorry, how's that? Any sorry better? about that. Yeah, this is better. Um, I was saying... Okay. Um, the, again, it, I think it, this is important for because it shows us that Bilbo, not only is he a good like covert thief and everything but what makes Bilbo so special is he doesn't give up you know he doesn't run, he mm. doesn't walk away from his mission and and uh, that's something we see in in Frodo and and Sam in the in the Lord of the Rings as well is this persistence of these hobbits they don't give up they might not be as strong as dwarves but mentally they're stronger um the uh I love the the, the 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 moment where you know they, they almost drop the key and then yeah. Thorin is back and puts his foot on the key. Brilliant! Like you have this sigh of relief going, going through the audience. And did you notice the 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 thing that they did in the framing of when Thorin is giving up and he talks about his father and you see the the statue of the dwarf and I suppose it's his father I don't know but you have the same nose and the same. <laughs> the statue is this exactly the same uh, silhouette as as um, as Thorin's face, uh, almost to suggest that now that Thorin gives up, it's this ongoing defeat of the dwarves, and it is ultimately by because they don't have enough courage. And thank God for 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 Bilbo. Thank God for hobbits. The dwarves would be lost without him. So they enter. Uh, the mountain, Bilbo finally gets his ultimate mission, and that is to confront the dragon. And all the dwarves stay behind outside where it's safe. <laughs> it, actually, to me, it, it doesn't make sense that they don't accompany Bilbo. But I think it is explained by the fact that, that um, Schmauk can smell dwarves and recognizes the smell and that's why Bilbo has to go along but then I'm thinking you know what Bilbo has been walking around with these with these dwarves all the time so a little bit of that smell must rub off on him <laughs> well I, I think the purpose 
focus behind sending just Bilbo in is the fact that they do view him as a thief, as someone who can be stealthy, which, yeah. as we all know, you can hear dwarves breathing from a distance, yeah. even if they're not even moving. Yeah, I think so, too. It's... Uh, there is this respect that you feel, even though it's not based on anything except Gandalf's recommendation that, you know what, this this, this uh, Bilbo must be good because uh, that's what Gandalf says. And, of course, Gandalf knows best. Uh, but um, we see Bilbo walking around through these empty hallways of the mountain and it looks you know fantastic we'd already seen some of this stuff in uh in in the trailers but it looks just amazing uh what i also loved is um you feel the loneliness of bilbo he he is he's walking around there and it's the the place is so overwhelming and then he you see the glow of the gold he turns the corner and you see how big it is he's like that works very well because I think it's one of the messages that Tolkien wanted to bring in his movies. Like, never underestimate the, uh, you know, the, the lone hobbit. And and you have to feel with Bilbo that it is impossible what he's going to undertake. Are you guys back? I think so. Yeah, yeah a little bit of an internet con- yeah, uh, connection trouble. No problem. I, I just kept talking. I was saying the, the way in which... Uh, Bilbo is portrayed in, you know, over with in this overwhelming size of of the mountain, is to to convey the message that how mm. on earth is this one little hobbit going to to get out alive? You know, this is Im- totally impossible. And 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 I love the 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 searching for the the Arkenstone, and then you feel the despair at Bilbo. Yeah, is this an Arkenstone? Oh, it looks nice. Uh, no, no, this then. No, no. <laughs> like, how? How is he going to find the Arkenstone? And then we get the reveal of Schmaug. And we hear him speak. And where are you? So let's talk about Schmaug and Bilbo. Just let's take the whole sequence together. Did it work? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I see. That's three yeses. What did you like? Yes, and thrice yes, as, as I would say in Lake Town. Uh, wow, the the first the first part of the conversation was just pitch perfect. The whole the, the leading up to the confrontation and that first few moments of conversation, verbatim from the book, just amazing, mm-hmm. amazing quality stuff. Uh, before it before it transformed kind of beyond the book, mm-hmm. but man, just that initial. Uh, conversation between Smaug and Bilbo. I mean, I, there's, it's, I'm kind of at a loss for words because there's nothing other than to say other than it was just portrayed perfectly. Yes. And uh, I love the, the way they conveyed the size where you first see the eye and then very far away in the distance and in 3D it works even better. You see this thing moving and you're like, wait a minute, that is the same animal. <laughs> And Bilbo's terrified realization of that. Well, yes. there's a little yes. comedic moment where Bilbo's just kind of measuring himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's really big. Like, Only how many hobbit links is this dragon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant acting. And uh, the whole the whole interaction between the dwarf and Bilbo, there was a little bit of um, what I felt was that I expected Schmaug to be a little smarter and even more kind of devious. And so, but perhaps I was just kind of um, 
romanticizing the book. That I've, it's been a while since I read that whole dialogue. So I remembered Smaug to be a, a little bit more of a challenge or, or I don't know. Instead, he's just very powerful and very dangerous and he has this fiery breath and that's why he's dangerous. But I, I, I wanted a little bit more kind of threat in the way he spoke. It, we do understand that he... he he knows exactly what's going on. This is not just Bilbo. This is this is Thorin. They're, they're after the Arkenstone, and I love the way that was played out. You're like, yeah, you want that. I'm almost tempted to let you get it and see how it will ruin Thorin. Uh, that was cool because it, of course, yeah. it's it's an ominous was... prophecy of what will happen in the move in the third movie. Yeah, that was definitely chilling, and I, I feel like Smog maybe wasn't as as smart, perhaps, as we thought, but uh, I think that that played more into the level of pride that is there. Yes. Uh, the pride is what makes him more fallible, basically, is what makes him, basically, you can defeat him because mm-hmm. of his pride. And that's exactly, uh, yeah. I mean, and I think that this was done very well. You know, knowing that Tolkien was a devout Catholic, he he knows that pride is like one of the most dangerous sins because it will blind you for you, you won't realize your weakness. And the way that the dialogue was written here, it's like where Schmaug is talking about himself almost as if he's a god. It's like I am fire, I am this, I am that. It's like wow, that is some divine <laughs> way of talking. And right. Bilbo spots the the weak. The, the Achilles heel, which is not in the heel, but it's like the, the weak point, and mm-hmm. he keeps his calm. And you know that the dragon, despite all his power, he is not going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I do like wow. how Bilbo wound up revealing himself to Smaug, how there, it was part of a plan on Bilbo's part, I think, but it was also sheer terror and intimidation of Smaug and a well, realization that I can't escape him even with the ring. Well, and remember that, like, and I, I just, I was looking for the quote and I just found it. Remember, there's something about, th- about you, something you carry, something made of gold, but far more precious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. And, um, the, the moment that we see the Arkenstone and it's like, wow, yeah. And it's actually, it's very much visible even when, you know, Bilbo is, is running away from the dragon and you constantly, it, 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 it totally works. It doesn't feel contrived, doesn't feel too no. convenient. No, this Arkenstone is almost like the ring, you know, it wants to be seen. And once you see it, you can't lose track of it. That's, that's oh. the power of the Arkenstone. Well, and it's like even that moment where Smaug had the power to compel Bilbo to take off the ring, where you get a sense of that kind of true. I think there's like a, an inner evilness that comes through, even maybe more than in the book that 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 Jackson was trying to communicate. But it's like like even the moment where Bil, but the like the moment where Bilbo says, you know, I did not come to steal from you, oh Smaug, the unassessably yes. wealthy. <laughs> I merely wanted to gaze upon your magnet, like straight from the book. It's it was brilliant, and it worked very very well. In the meantime, there is something else going on, and that. Is, of course, we've totally forgotten about Gandalf. And, oh, yes. And together, of course, with Radagast the Brown, they discover that, yes, the tombs are now empty. The, the ring wraiths are gone. And you get the confrontation. And I'm just going to go very fast over this because I, for time reasons, I need to wrap up. No, but, I know. Uh, I apologize. We've carried on so much. Oh, no, it's no problem. You. I mean, that's what, why we're here, right? Uh, we love to geek out on, on, on this stuff. But uh, the... the um, 
you get this confrontation between the necromancer and Gandalf. And at, for the first time, at least chronologically, you feel like, actually, Gandalf might have met his, might have met his match. I, this is unspeakable evil. And I love just, the, you know, the, uh, this circle of light. And every time the darkness, like, compresses it and almost tries to bust the force bubble. And, and Gandalf, again, gets smashed against the wall, almost like a crucifix. Reminding me very much of what happens in uh, with um, oh in the, the Lord of the Rings when he goes to Saruman and you have this fight between Saruman and uh, and uh, Gandalf and and that and that fight almost I think it, again it's deliberately you have that same pose where he is like force pushed against the wall and he's there hanging like a crucifix completely out of power. And, and then you have to reveal who this necromancer truly is, and you see the eye, but the eye is actually a silhouette in fire, and man, that was so well done. And with the, 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 the 3D, when the, the, you go through the eye, and then again and again, it was making me dizzy. It felt like I was in a, like in a, in a, in a theme park ride. It was visually amazing. Made me want to see the, the Lord of the Rings movies actually in 3D as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just like, I'm just going to run through a couple quick ones. Ian McKellen, just yeah. pitch perfect Gandalf. Yeah. You know, Thor, you know, uh, Thor and Oakenshield, just portrayed perfectly. Mm. Uh, and we've already said how great, uh, you know, Martin Freeman has been. Benedict Cumberbatch, his voice work a smile. Just like, I think, if nothing else, the casting of this film is, is just amazing. Yeah. He's so menacing, his voice. And like the. Uh, because uh, I didn't realize it, because uh, I always kind of like th- think back of him having a high pitched voice, but actually in, in, in Sherlock, for instance, he has a very low voice. Very, yeah. Uh, he, he's we, very slender, and that's why you think he can't have that gravitas, but he has. Uh, it's like, and he almost has. I was talking to Bethany after one of the uh, one of the film viewings. Uh, I think it was like even the second or third one, and he has this kind of the, the pitch to his voice. It's not even post processing, but he kind of has this when he gets frustrated. Mm-hmm. It's almost kind of like he's whining a little bit from. He goes just from the deep voice, but it's like when he says, "I laid low your warriors of old," and he kind of has this kind of. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to describe, but he, I love that those moments. It's kind of like. And, and the way the sound mix and the voiceover work, it's kind of like the, the, the Bane from yeah. Dark Knight Rises where it, it takes up the mm. whole speaker system. <laughs> and I love the, the whole animation of the, of the dragon. And it, the, 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 that was one of the biggest fears of some people involved in movies. Like, is this going to work? A talking dragon is going to be believable. But I think they did a terrific job. And they didn't even have to hide his, his beak or anything. It... it it, it totally worked. And it, you see his tongue move and the words come out and just perfect. But then we get to the final attack. The dwarves try to kill Smaug by firing up the ovens. I love to see it. It's stuff that I kind of like recognize from Moria, from the, the Lord of the Rings Online. And so it was very exciting. At the same time, I was watching this whole sequence and I was like, Oh, that is convenient. Oh, that is convenient. You know what? This felt like like the big uh, factory scene in the second ah, prequel. Attack of the Clones. Yeah, Attack of the Clones. Yeah. It was like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, too convenient. Uh-huh, that would never work in real life. I mean, just <laughs> all choreographed. I liked it, but it felt like an action scene. And in, in, in that respect, very much like the barrel ride. It's just one of those moments where you just have to stop thinking and just go with the flow, literally. 
the flow of gold. I mm-hmm. did love, 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 love that final confrontation where, you know, they have this statue and they they have filled it with molten gold. And for a few seconds, the dragon faces his, his nemesis and it's this huge golden dwarf that is going to engulf him. Symbolically, that must have been a, a story that the dwarves will still tell centuries from now to their children. It's like, and then... The dragon who thought he was so big saw an even bigger golden dwarf. <laughs> it was glorious. I, you know, actually, that whole action sequence, I felt I didn't really have too much of any out-of-body experiences. I actually liked it all, maybe with the one exception of just right at the end, the mm-hmm. melted gold part, I thought was a little, just like that one step, maybe a little too far. But like uh-huh. as far as a confrontation, I think that was a good decision to not have the door, you know, in the books, the dwarves never encountered the dragon, yeah. and I think that would have been uh, a kind of a shame. So I, I actually don't mind that addition, but it was a little bit, uh, uh, maybe a little bit too much as far as uh, Peter Jackson having a little bit of fun with the special effects. Well, it, it was a lot of creative uh, freedom there, and I, I, while I was watching it, I was thinking there are going to be a lot of upset Tolkien people walking out of the theater right now. Yeah, but uh, you know what? For someone who doesn't know the story, you get that moment where you think they killed the dragon because you know that that the dragon has to be killed. So is this the moment? If you don't know what's going to happen, it it works. And then having that golden dragon fly out, man, I thought he was shaking off the gold a little bit too quickly. Uh, all of a sudden, he was back to his former self. I would have loved an attack of a golden dragon <laughs> on Lake Town, visually. But uh, but anyway, you have this huge, huge action sequence, and he's like, is he dead? No, he's alive, and he, he flies out, and he's like, now we're going to see the big attack. There's all this rage of the dragon, and he's more angry and heated up than ever before. And then, what have we done? Boom. End credits. <laughs> <laughs> and like the entire, I don't know how it was with your viewings, but like oh. the people were like, no, come a, on. Like really a bit angry. <laughs> it, there is an audible gasp In fact, of horror. Like there's this moment the right here where he goes, fire. And then you hear it right here. Yeah. And you hear it fade out yeah. like that. <laughs> I didn't realize the audio was doing that. It's almost like like blowing out a candle. It's like, whoosh. yeah, you thought you were going to <laughs> to eat it's, the cake. Y'all have to wait. <laughs> on the one hand, it's like, and we have to wait so long before the next one. Oh, it's just one year. It's not Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's this the- is true. This is true. This is why I would have been a very bad Star Wars yeah. fan some yeah. years ago. But... Uh, one thing about this movie was I definitely did not guess where it would have ended. With the first no. film, mm-hmm. I actually guessed yeah. right up to the exact moment in the book mm-hmm. where the film would end. And I actually told Riley, this is the page in the book that I stopped reading on because I do firmly believe that the movie will end right here. And I was right. Good. But uh, with this That's film, so I had fun. no idea. And I wonder how they're going to pick it up in the third film because well, it I feels see. so cliff like a cliffhanger. Yeah. I kind of see you a, almost feel like you want, need to have a previously on. Previously. Yes. Oh, and then it doesn't I am death. <laughs> well, it, like 
as far as setting up the third, I think it's great because it sets up a kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, Empire Strikes Back structure for the third film where you have a big combat sequence at the beginning and then a lot of tension building as things kind of level off in the middle act and then, of course, the big battle at the at the third act. So I kind of like that idea. Yeah, me too. I think it's... Uh... Uh, I mean, afterwards, I understand. I I wasn't happy with it, <laughs> but it was. I don't good. think anybody was happy with it. But it's that's a good sign because it means that you're in the story and you want you want to see what happens next. And well, that's that's what you have to do as a filmmaker. You have to get make people come back for the third movie. And well, seeing the success of this second movie and the the high ratings it gets, I'm I'm not worried at all. And I think that before. We get to see the third movie. Of course, there will be the uh, the DVD release, the Blu-ray release, the extended re- release, like a month or so before the final movie. And then you'll I, you can bet that they will spend every dollar that's left on on the marketing for this third movie, so that everybody is going to see it. But um, yeah, overall, my my general feeling was I kind of connected more to the personal story between Thorin and Bilbo um, in the first movie because it was a bit unexpected and I thought it worked very, very well. Uh, it was also surprising because it was not deliberately, you know, it, it, written like that by Tolkien, but it felt like it's even better than Tolkien, dare I say. This movie was good. I had a lot of fun. It felt a bit rushed and I did not connect with the, peop- the 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 characters that I thought I would connect with. So the 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 Keely Toriel, I expected a little bit more, and it's all probably because of you know this podcast, and we're just talking about it all the time. So my expectations are just sky high, and then of course you know the real thing. It's never as good as your dreams. Final thoughts. Wow, it, I'll tell you what. This is a, it, it's a great film. Um, there was a lot of backlash, I think, that I was reading online, and and I can sympathize with, with a lot of it. But overall, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. And if if I were to give a thumbs up or down as to whether or not Peter Jackson kept the core story of the Hobbit intact, I think he still did. And there were the, we talked a lot about, and that's kind of the nature of being fans. We talked talked a lot about the discrepancies or things that we felt were different. But like overall, this is a great film. Really enjoyed it. What about you, Bethany? Overall, I thought that this was a great film, and I had so much fun seeing it. It definitely engaged me. Uh, there were, I felt that there was a loss from the first film to the second of sort of the Hobbit innocence, the, the Hobbit joys. There was no sense of, you know, the songs that were so nice. And Yeah, you're right. No songs. There's just... A loss of the Hobbit culture, I felt like. True. And I felt like the culture was maintained throughout the book uh, and was not in this film. But remember in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it was very similar. The second movie was very serious, a lot of darkness. And it was almost a kind of a relief when we went back to the world of Hobbits in the, with the flashback to uh, Schmeagol, you know, in the, the, the beginning of the third movie. He's like, ah, sunshine. Man, I must miss the sunshine. <laughs> anyway, we thank you all for listening to our two-hour and ten-minute review of the movie. And we'll be back. SQPN, leading the way in Catholic new media.